From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. I'm Josh Thomas, and I make a TV show called Please Like Me, and um, it's on in pretty much every country in the world. When I was a child, I wanted to be a puppy trainer, but that's not really, I don't know if that's really a job. I guess it probably is. Yeah, there's people who do that for a living. You will know Josh Thomas as the blonde-haired 20-something from Please Like Me, an Aussie comedy which has stolen audience hearts the world over. The New Yorker describes the show as having a tender, finicky quality a diffident charisma. They could well be describing Josh Thomas himself. Raised in Brisbane, he once described himself as fat and unknowingly gay. There is a lot more to this man, Josh Thomas. You grew up in Brizzy. Where were your folks from? They're from North Queensland. I just have an eccentric accent. Is that what you're asking me? No, I was asking you about your childhood. Oh, yeah, they're from... um, They're from Cairns and Townsville. And were you born in Brisbane? I was born in uh, Blackwater, which is like, if you try to find the centre of Queensland, which is hard because it's a triangle, but it's like right in the middle. I left when I was three months old, which is a really good thing for me because I don't think I would stop my natural habitat. I've never been back. You do have an unusual accent, though. Yes. Is it's it? just my voice. Yeah. Well, I have to be very careful because I'm not very clear at talking. I'm very, very hard. People find it hard to understand me. So I'm always like trying really hard to talk clearly. Did you like growing up in Brizzy? I mean, I liked it at the time, but then, because I didn't know any better. But then once you leave, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's fine there, but let's, there's better places. People often talk about growing up wanting to get out, knowing from an early age they wanted to leave to be somewhere different. Did you have that? I just didn't know that Brisbane wasn't that good because I just, that's where I lived, you know. I just would be like, oh, that's fine. I mean, it's not like, if you're a homosexual, you have to move to like the biggest city you can find because otherwise you're just not going to find a partner. You know, like if you're in Brisbane, there's just not that many gay people and then you have to, you end up with some junk dude. So you have to get into these ghettos in the bigger cities. And you knew that from what age? Well, I didn't know that, but I know that now. <laughs> you've got to get you've got to get to the biggest city you can because because there's not that many gay people. There's not that many of us, you know. So you right. need as many people as possible around you so you have a better chance of finding someone cute. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up with boys who decided to stay in Brisbane. No, thank you. So it's all a numbers game for you, is it? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Also, like the more gay people there are around, the less chance you'll get like bashed up. As like a general, there's like a link. So you want to be somewhere busy. Also, it's just more fun. Like the gay parties in Melbourne are a lot better than the ones in Brisbane. Melbourne's definitely cool. I think it's probably the coolest city in Australia. Yeah, Queensland, they like to go outside and they like... um, Barbecues. Racism and stuff like that, you know. They just don't have that much in common with it. You don't seem to particularly love where you come from. Well, I don't hate it. It's just fine. It's just not for me. Like, definitely, like, Melbourne is a better match for me than Brisbane. I don't really have anything. Of course, like, good on them. It's sunny. There's not as much traffic. They really like that. I mean, my dad hates Melbourne, and he just doesn't understand why anybody wouldn't, like, pay to live there. He thinks trams are so annoying. They just really upset him every time he comes down. He's just really upset about hook turns. But I don't agree. I don't... I want cafes. (laughs) I just want as many cafes as you can fit into into a, into a city. For what purpose? Coffee and just living and just being happy. 
You, how many siblings did you have growing I up? I got an older brother and an older sister. Do you get along with them as a child? Yeah, 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 as well as you do. So what did you guys get up to? There's like a creek near my house that we used to play in, which I can't imagine now. I imagine that's probably sewerage now. We used to like paddle around and catch tadpoles. Do kids do that now? I'm sure they do. Somewhere. Are there tadpoles still? Yes. I mean, that sounds very idyllic, doesn't it? Catching tadpoles in a creek. In school, were you a good student? Were you popular? I was an awful, like, I'm not like, I've got ADHD. So me in school was like, and I diagnosed ADHD very loud and very frustrated and annoyed. You were only diagnosed with that. A few like years two ago, years. Right? Well, we knew like for like ever, but uh, I, like two years ago, I was like, I should get the drugs, right? <laughs> like if you can, if they're gonna give it to you, you should get them. So uh, I got them, and it made life a lot easier. I, I'm interested to know though how the ADHD sort of manifested as a teenager. I mean, you just get like the thing about ADHD is you just if you're bored, it's like really anxiety inducing. So if you're stuck in class, then you just go a bit crazy. Right. And that's what and they lash out. And, and you do that. We all know that kid at school. Sometimes would be like quite mean and then other times would be like really self-destructive and just I, to kind of create like a pathological quest for stimulus, you know, just trying to create something. I Which, guess as the other kid, you're not necessarily aware though that that kid has ADHD. No, so you just think they're a bit of a dickhead. Yeah. I mean, I used to like, when I was in primary school, I would just like start crying in the middle of class just because it was like I hated it there so much. I get in trouble. I get like... Teachers sort of like, once you get like further into high school, they sort of start liking that kid that's a bit sort of, as you like grow up a bit more, they like sort of, was, sort of, sort of thought it was fun. They'd like joke around with you, you know. Were you doing creative stuff? Were you doing funny stuff in the school environment? Or Yeah, yeah. I was doing all like the gay stuff or like the musicals and the Rocker Steadfords. <laughs> yeah, of course. And what did you do in the Rocker Steadford? I played like a kid, the child that was like dressed in pink polka dots. <laughs> You just have to wonder sometimes why the teachers thought that was a good idea. Like, they just don't understand. They're so disconnected from what's going on in the schoolyard. They hand you this, like, pink satin costume. <laughs> it's not helpful, you know? Couldn't you have said no? Then, like, why? Well, I didn't know. I was. I just thought it was cute. <laughs> cute costume. <laughs> now, I, now I understand. It probably would have been easier just to not. Just don't Just don't go in the Rockers Tedford. Did you know that you had a kind of creative future ahead of you, though, in, in high school? Was that something you were thinking about? I really wanted to do stand-up. I was doing Class Clowns, which is like this high school comedy competition when I was 15. And that's what I really wanted to do. I was obsessed with stand-up. But I didn't really, un- I didn't really understand because I'd go and watch it at, in, like, theatres. So I'd watch, like, very famous, accomplished stand-ups all the time and it just seemed sort of quite easy because I'd never seen anyone do it, do it badly. It always just seemed like um, a really sweet, easy gig. I had never considered that it might go bad. I started in clubs when I was 17 and it's sort of like I just would never start now because I know that it can be horrible. But when I was 17, I just didn't think it through. Teenagers make such dumb choices. And that was mine. The Raw Comedy Festival is an entry point for many young comedians. Josh Thomas was the youngest person ever to win it at just 17. You went to, I think, Melbourne for the Raw Festival. Uh, You won. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, and it it was like my first gig I'd ever done. So it wasn't, and then I didn't really thought it through. Do you know what I mean? Just sort of thought like I'll go in this competition and then I won it. And then it was kind of awkward because I didn't really know what I was doing. And then they would like introduce you and hype you up a bit. And you sort of had no idea how to do stand up. Like it takes a few years to learn. 
I just had like a couple of good gigs early on. And then it was all about um, how everyone thinks I'm gay, but I'm not gay. That's embarrassing looking back. I think it was probably a bit misogynistic as well. Do you remember any of the lines? I did like a lot. I spoke for a few minutes about why people think I'm gay, but I'm not gay. And then I spoke for a few minutes about my mum at the store losing her mind and making me and buying condoms with me and like buying um, like assorted condoms with her auntie and her being like really annoying. And then like a few years later, she got diagnosed with bipolar and I came out. But we had no idea when I was doing that stand-up routine, but it seems so obvious. I think if I watched it now, I'd be like, oh, it's perfect. If I watched that kid, I'd be like, oh, I've got some things to tell you. <laughs> about what's happening in your life. Those sorts of moments, though, if you win something like that, it can kind of catapult you. Raw's not like that. Raw's like an amateur comedy competition. So you're like, you're the best, not very good comedian. And the industry is across that. They're not like booking you in to do stuff. Like you're, you do five minutes. You're an open micer. You're the best open micer, which is the best worst person. So it's, it's hardly like. So did it make any difference? Did it have any impact? If anything, it was just motivating. It was like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're fine at this and you can keep going and, and you can probably make a career out of it. And I left university like at the end of the year, it started booking gigs in other cities and stuff. So it was kind of, I don't know, you need someone to tell you you're good probably to, to bother, especially with stand up because it's so often horrendous. But then I had like a positive introduction. And what was it about the experience of doing stand up that you thought I like this? Well, I was quite good at it. Which was, which was good. They gave me trophies. But people responded um, well. Yeah, people responded well, which was nice. It was never, like, i never that good in, like, social situations, really, and, like, chatting. But then, like, I could go clear on stage and know what I was doing and, and really, like, be a person, which I quite liked. And um, Why is that, do you think, for so many people that find it difficult in a basic social situation to get on a stage in front of a huge crowd well, and the, the stage, even though it's so high risk, is still, like, very controlled. Like, I know... Like you get like you get an actual stage and a little microphone and no one else gets one and there's like light. So even though it's sort of so exposed, it's, it's also quite safe. Like you sort of know what it's going to be, and once you learn how to be up there, it's sort of um, it was quite comfortable. I couldn't. There's no way I could hold down a real job. There's just absolutely no way I could have done. I mean, I've never really had a job. Um, Were you doing casual work, doing other stuff? Barely, not really. I what did, kind of thing? I did. I got this job. My friend got me this job. Um, editing cutscenes for video games. Cutscenes are like the little like movie bits in between the games, and it sort of sounds a bit fancy than it is. It's like kind of like the factory floor of video game companies. So I did that, but they the company was really disorganized. I worked there for six months, and they never got me the stuff I needed to make anything. So I just sat there, and then I left. At what point did you realize you were gay? Because it was around the age of twenty, right? Yeah, I think so. I, like, fell in love with a boy. That's, like, for me, I think for a lot of gay people, they sort of feel like they can suppress, like, the sign of sex side of it. But then once you fall in love with someone, then it's sort of, that's quite motivating. So I fell in love with a boy, I kissed a boy, and then I was like, oh, I better do this. Right. It doesn't sound like it was entirely unexpected, though, from what you've described. Well, no, you sort of know. I mean, my internet search history. But then also I didn't really, like, I had girlfriends, and I really enjoyed having sex with them. But then you sort of outgrow that. Because when you're a teenager, you know, putting your dick anywhere is fun and it's sort of confusing. And then as you get to the end of your 20s, I was like, actually, I, I don't want to. And did it change anything for you? Well, I mean, yeah, a lot more dick in my life. That's <laughs> a big change. Uh, I stopped going on these horrendous dates and ruining <laughs> these girls' weeks. But that was good. And I feel that you sort of, yeah, it's nice to be sort of honest with the world. Not that I really felt like I was being that dishonest beforehand. I was just working it out. I was like, 
pretty famous by the time it came out on your gen. And that was like the highest rated show on television at the time. So it was like a proper thing. So people didn't really, it wasn't. It came out on the show, did you? No, not on the show, but like I was like doing that show at the right. time. So it was like, it was like a thing. And it was just sort of before it was so cool as well. Now it's so cool. I'd love a YouTube coming out video. They get so many hits, but this was like before then. How did you do it? I did a po- I used to have a podcast with Tom, my my best friend, and he was just like, uh, so you're gay. And then like, we chatted about it for a while. Right. And then my I told my dad he should listen to it. <laughs> I texted him. Really? Yeah. And was there any feedback from your dad on that podcast? Don't get AIDS was the main was the main thrust. <laughs> Please don't get AIDS. For about a week we had that conversation. I'm across it, I'm across it. Right. He was annoyed that I didn't tell him face to face and I was like, well, let's not pretend like this is a big deal. And then my mum called me and my brother told her and she said, What's this I hear about you having a boyfriend? And I was like, Mum, I'm on the train. And then she said, Okay. And then we never really spoke about it again. That's it. Quite simple. My brother's gay, so it's not like a big contract. He was already come out, so we knew how they were going to feel about it. It wasn't like, for me, I wasn't worried about what they would think or whatever. I was just, I just didn't really want to talk to my family about my sex life. So it was... was, was Fair enough. It's like putting off, like, doing my tax or something. I wasn't scared of it. I just would prefer to be doing anything else than talking to my mum about kissing boys. As you say, though, you were pretty famous at that time. You were on some big TV shows. Uh, was it? Did it present any challenges in terms of public response, people getting agitated about it, agents be- saying to you, this is going to be a problem, any of those kinds of things? No, nobody was like that. No, everyone was cool about it. There's definitely there was like a weird shift in my audience over the next few years. Like I was my my main, like my, my gigs back then were like... Um, screaming teenage girls like you wouldn't like you wouldn't believe like 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 a justin bieber concert like this really loud it got like quite hard for me to do stand up for like a little while there because they would just scream like the whole time and it's not really you can't really talk and they sort of stopped buying tickets but they were only there for like six months but then i found a new audience pretty quickly like just gay people and couples and so you start developing the pitch for please like me yeah, I was straight when we started, and then it came out, and then we had to edit it. <laughs> and then uh, no, no one thought it was that big a deal, really. I mean, for me, it was always like, oh, I'm gay, so the show's going to be gay. I, I didn't have a choice, and I never really thought about it again. When it came out, and then every interview was about, everyone was like, oh, you're gay. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's right. <laughs> it was weird. We never, I never really considered it when we were making the show. There are definitely, like, other people who were weird about how long the gay kiss should go for and stuff like that. But. So given that it's perceived that way, what are you actually setting out to do? What was the purpose of writing? I was trying to be employed and make the show that's good. And the fact that I was gay was sort of uh, kind of irrelevant. Were you I, making stuff up in terms of the ideas or were you just writing down? No, it's, like, really based on my life, that show. And then stuff's made up. Jeffrey, the boy Josh gets within the first episode, was not a real boy. But it would have been awful to watch me pretend to be straight. That would have been weird. And it was very different. Like, it was only five years ago that we made season one. But even then, the the tension people had around gay kisses and the nervousness they had about putting that on the ABC was, like, much different to now. It's changed in the last five years a lot. It has had this phenomenal success globally. I imagine most Aussie comedians writing a, a comedy series don't imagine that's going to happen. No, you don't really think you're going to go overseas and you don't think you're going to do another season. 
Do you have any ideas as to what it is about the show that makes it work in other environments? Because it's very Australian in many ways. Do you think so? I watched it overseas, yeah. watched it living overseas, yeah, and it feels very Australian. Maybe it's so got- really like suburban. I feel like a lot of American television isn't that suburban, you know. It's always in like Manhattan or Hollywood or yeah, okay. And you don't see that many shows that are in the suburbs. I guess I think which and a lot of shows in Australia are always in the suburbs, in England as well. But I don't think I think it's like so personal and so unique to me, and so like its own thing that it's like not really any countries. Mm. It feels quite confessional. Do you think that's part of the appeal in America? I don't know, really. Americans are so weird to me. And I still, I was just talking to my boyfriend. I'm going there in like a few weeks. And I still am just talking to them. And I just see their eyes glaze over. And I just don't know how to interact with them. Because they're a bit different. They're another species. They're like just a bit. And they're very like, they don't like it when you're self-deprecating. They just sort of like, if you say something self-deprecating, they just, they A, believe you. They're like, oh, yeah, you are a slug. Um, <laughs> and then they sort of get a bit weird. So and I find interacting with them so weird. And then I wonder when they see the show, what they're watching. I think they really cling on a lot more to, like, the drama and, like, the uplifting sort of scenes. The sentimentality yeah, element. because there's a bit of that in there. And they like the um, that it's about issues. So they think that's, like, important and that they really like those kind of things. It speaks to identity politics. Yeah. I'm not sure... I don't know, I would like to watch some Americans watch the show. I mean, I have, I've sat with them in audiences and they did laugh all the, all the right places. But I, just, I don't know why that doesn't then transfer to when I talk to them in real life. <laughs> I don't know why I can't. I'll be talking to someone who likes the show and they'll be looking at me like I'm an alien. The, the most recent season, season four, has taken a, a significantly t- darker tone, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's got a lot of coverage because of that, again, was that deliberate or that's just you're, you're writing down these ideas, this is what's before you, and that's where the series goes? I mean, we've always been pretty dark. Like, the first episode starts with my mum attempting suicide. So it's not like, I mean, we got, I think we've probably, if anything, we just got a bit better at our jobs and it's now doing probably what we wanted it to do. I mean, are we doing spoilers in this? Here we go. Here's a a spoiler alert. If you haven't watched all of season four, Josh is about about to to talk about it. So the mum kills herself. So in that first episode, she attempts suicide, and this season she kills herself. And for me, it was just like, that's the last, on this discussion that we've had over the last 30 episodes about suicide and, you know, what that can do and how that can affect people, that's like the last thing we haven't actually discussed is like, what happens if it succeeds? So we did it. I thought watching that episode, there was something quite unusual for television in it. There was no hint of this coming. This yeah, we moment. put a lot of effort in. Like it's the shot structure, of down to the shot structure of Josh walking into that house. We have a whole scene in F1, which serves no other purpose other than to make the audience not think it's weird that we're following Josh into mum's house. That's really the whole point of this other scene that we have. Because um, often when people die, like, you know, like in Neighbours, all of a sudden you're watching somebody drive a car and you're like, you never see that in Neighbours. So it's like, oh, of course they're about to get in a car crash. So I wanted to make it like not weird that for the show to follow him walking in the front door. Um, And then... Because he literally is stopped in his tracks. Yeah, he's just going, he's just, I think the the first half of the episode is about this boy wanting him to choke him during sex. It's like the most ridiculous thing I could think of to like misdirect. 
well, also you need a promo. <laughs> so we brought Jeffrey back, who was like a popular character from season one, so that they had something to put in the promo that wasn't mum dies. Because you've got to be careful that these networks don't think it's a good idea to tell everyone in the promo. And then, yeah, so it was really, it was important to me that it was sort of, that it just happens in amongst everyone else's lives and that there's no hint. The sense of loss, though, that he experiences in terms of just not knowing what to do also felt to me pretty real. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I've never, it's one of these things, like so much of the show is personal and then we have these big, this episode, uh, another one with uh, his friend getting an abortion and there are two things that are so big that I've not experienced and we had to like try and figure out like how I would feel about it, which is like not a fun exercise. You know what I mean? It's not like a fun day in the writer's room. But yeah, I thought I probably would ignore it really for a while. Really what he's doing is just, putting off coming to terms with it and not really knowing what to do. There's a there's a sort of flippant tone about Josh's life in in many ways in Please Like Me, but then some pretty deep messaging, I suppose. What are you trying to do? We're not trying to do anything. We're just trying to, like, make a TV show that's entertaining and trying, like, for us, like, the most important thing is, like, honestly representing these characters and just trying to create a world that feels sort of real and like trying to service them and them doing things that they would really do. I mean, we have to, with like suicide and mental health, you have to be really responsible and we get it checked and we do all this stuff because you don't want to trigger people. Um, and you want to be really careful with how you, part of the reason why in that episode when mum kills herself, we finish on this shot of her in the morgue is because I didn't want to like celebrate her after she killed herself. Cause you don't want people watching and thinking like, well, that looks fun. Everyone crying about that person being dead. And I thought probably the most straightforward way of doing that was just seeing her like wasted corpse amongst this pile of other corpses in a fridge, just pretty dark. Um, so that's like, we try and be responsible like that, like making sure we're not making it look like a good idea. You said we're not trying to do anything other than to create a world for these characters that, that's real. Why are you doing it though? What do you mean? What drives? What's driving you? What's the motivation in terms of telling this story? When you watch television, you you get to see people's lives that you maybe wouldn't otherwise see, and you get to like feel empathy and understand different people's experiences. So that's what like you try and do. I think when you try to make a good narrative series, is you want people to make friends with the characters and have the characters experience things, so that the audience gets to sort of experience it alongside them and see what that's like and sort of I know I feel like it sort of builds empathy um and then you have people who I mean quite a lot of people who have lived through the exact same experience and then hopefully it's like a comfort for them to see someone else I'm interested in what motivates you as a storyteller because you, you tell this story that that treads a fairly fine line between your life and a fictional world yeah and the audience audiences around the world are, are building into that all sorts of meaning. So yeah. I suppose what interests me is why you're, why you're doing it. It's not just because you enjoy the art. Yes, of course it. it is. I want to do a good job of my, I want to do a good job of making the show. And then, so that episode, I want you to like, feel really sad that this person died. That's, that's simple. When as I that. wake up and I'm writing that episode, it's like, how can we, get the audience to feel these emotions that we need them to feel. It's not, I'm not trying to like, um, I don't know, I'm not trying to like raise funding for mental health or whatever. It's just try to make like a 
quality experience. So when I say to you, like, we're trying to get people to build empathy with the characters, that's like what I think is a, a good experience when you watch the show. I'm not trying to trick anybody. And I'm not trying to get gay marriage passed. Like, that's not what I'm sitting there thinking about. I just want it to be good. I want it to make you laugh or cry or feel something. It's not boredom. That's all. The inevitable outcome of success uh, is, of course, fame and celebrity and a whole different sort of realm of existence. That's something Josh Thomas, I guess, has a lot of exposure to now. Josh, uh, do you think that famous people have more fun? You kind of get the keys to this world that that most of us don't get access to. <laughs> I was, like, most famous when I was, like, 20. And back then it used to really, like, I just hated it more than you could imagine. Like, I hated going out and I didn't like being recognised. I didn't much like talking to strangers. So it's not, like, a great position to be in because lots of strangers really want to chat. And then I sort of, like, as I got more comfortable with it, now I'm just sort of like, oh, it's nice. People are just sort of quite friendly Waiters are usually pretty nice. But then you have this flip side where maybe they hate you before they've met you based on who knows what, you know. And you just have to deal with that. You never really know what they're thinking. You never really know what they've watched as well. Like, you don't know what experience they have with you, if any. And then when you try and make friends with people and they have all these, like, preconceptions. That's all a bit weird. But You get to go on Celebrity MasterChef. <laughs> you get to go on Celebrity MasterChef. I get free tickets to musicals. They took my last-minute booking at Setsuya. It was good. <laughs> I was happy about that. And, that, and I, I don't know, I sort of... It did, like, for me, I did have to sort of learn that that was fun and to, like, enjoy those things. Because there are... Like, also, you sort of can't go to, like, the mall. I wouldn't walk down King Street on a Saturday night or... You took your brother and your nana on talking about my my generation. You poured baked beans on her Sour head. cream on her. I did. It's kind of mean. No, I don't think it is. Well, I, this is... <sighs> So what happened was we're, we're doing, there's a game called Trust Me, where one person answers questions, the other person sits in this, like, torturous device. And this one was called The Human Nacho. And the person answering questions, if they get it wrong, then the other person has stuff bought on their head. In this case, it was sour cream, right? So they're setting up this game, and of course, everybody thinks I'm going to go in the, obviously I think I'm going to go in the, the thing. I don't want my grandma to go in the thing, of course. I'm on television, right? Like, I'd much prefer to have a sour, I'd much prefer to have sour cream poured on my head than be the guy on television pouring sour cream <laughs> on his grandma's head. But she really wanted to do it. And we didn't want to say to her, you're too old to do it. That's unfair. Twice the producers stepped on stage and stopped in the middle of shooting it. And twice in four years. And that was one of them. And then she loved it. I don't know. And then I got, I got, I, that's like I was walking through the shops and this lady comes up to me and starts yelling at me. She couldn't believe I did that to my grandma, <laughs> you know. The responsibility of fame. She loved it so much. She, she poured it on top of her and then she got a, said she got a corn chip and wiped it off her sleeve and ate the corn chip. Everyone's cheering. Do you know, like it's, she had the best day. But I get in trouble. From people you don't know. Well, people who don't know that like she wanted to. You can't tell her no. I'm not telling my grandma no. She's the boss. I know you said that you don't do any of this because you want to achieve something. You're not trying to raise money for charity. You're not trying to get gay marriage uh, allowed in Australia. But then you do go on things like Q&A. Yeah. So you do have an argument to make or a position to put it. Yeah, if I'm on Q&A, then then I will... Obviously, that's the point of that show. But you don't have to go on it, is the point. No, no, no. Yeah, I don't have to go on it, but it's fun. Um, Why? 
the the game on that show is you have to have opinions and you have to push your political point. So on that show, I will. But on other shows, I try not to. Are you comfortable doing that? I mean, I was very comfortable. Now I probably would be very dull on that show. Why? Why? I'd be like, well, everybody has their point of view and it's, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> I don't know. That I doesn't mean, really work for outrage television, does it? No. But then I would probably, like, because with Bob Catter, I was trying to be so polite. And then he kept saying these, like, really like, horribly misogynistic things all through the episodes. And I was just sort of, like, breathing. Like, I was just sort of breathing. And I just sort of like him, weirdly. He's sort of, I don't know, he's fun, right? And then I lost my temper. <laughs> I really, like, in that, there's one big thing, I, I don't know if you've seen it, where I, like, lost my temper. And then what people happened? loved that. He just started talking about gays and how gays, you know, he thinks gays don't exist in Queensland. And I just sort of lost my mind. And then... And, uh, I mean, were you visibly cranky? I mean, I just looked like I was having fun. And I was having fun. But, like, I, I definitely lost my control. Like, I was ranting and ranting and ranting and ranting and ranting. And Tony Jones was sort of like... We'll take that as a comment. Sort of like, <laughs> you need to let him... Be, I think he said you need to let him talk sometimes. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then it sort of finishes. And you don't know because you're talking into a vacuum, really. Like, you've got the audience in the room. But you don't really know how it's been responded to. So I sort of blacked out, yelled for a few minutes about Grinder, <laughs> <laughs> And then... Tony, like, finished the show, and then Bob got up and put his hat on all furious and marched off, and I was just sitting there thinking, like, have I just humiliated myself? Like, <laughs> what just happened? Yeah. Know? But there was this, like, moment where the dust settled, and you just think, I don't think I'll go on that show again. It's just very, because you, you don't know what they're going to ask you, quite sincerely, and um, and it's live. So, like, you could just get all these questions about Aleppo, and I don't really know... I don't have any answers, you know. So it is properly terrifying. Do you think, though, you have a valuable voice in that space of political argument? Because Well, that one was about mental health. So I really didn't want it to get stolen by, by gay issues, actually. But um, I guess they're pretty linked. Um, so I was like, yeah, I've got personal experience with this and I know how to talk about it. And But there's a, I guess my question is there's a lot of young people that want to have a voice, that struggle to find a voice in the national discourse, yeah. whether it's on gay rights or whether it's on mental health issues. And you have that possibility yeah, because of the fame that comes along with being this successful uh, comedic actor and writer. So do you feel any sense of responsibility, like I've got to use that because other people don't have it? I feel like just by being gay and doing my job, I'm doing the gay rights thing. And so I used to think that I had to go and talk at rallies I go on Q&A and you'd always get these requests to like, I don't know, wear purple on your Twitter or whatever. And then and then I sort of was like, actually, it's fun being gay. Like, it's really fun. And like, I like it a lot. And I just don't know if this is the best marketing to always talk about the suicide rates, even though they're very serious and I'm very concerned about them. Maybe the best way to push the gay agenda is to just be fun, you know, because we want to recruit as many gays as we can. And I just think the best marketing is to just be out there and being gay and living and is that what the gay agenda is? That's what the gay agenda that's what they'll that's what the that's what the they'll tell you. That's what the Christian lobby will tell you. We're trying to recruit your kids. <laughs> I I thought it was just sort of wanting to be equal, but that's not how they see it. So I I don't know. I don't I don't feel like I need to be 
printing posters anymore. What do you think about identity politics? Do you think it's a healthy thing? Do you think it's good that every individual now feels that they can represent themselves as they wish, perhaps without as much regard for the community idea as maybe what we once did? Of course you want everyone to just be able to do what they feel comfortable doing. And you can't, like, quash people. Like, when you see the Christian lobby try and make these laws, you know, stopping gay people from, like, adopting, and it's like you can't actually... You're going to lose. Sure, like, they won't adopt, but all they need is access to a uterus, and there's literally billions, and you, you can't stop that. Like, you can't stop people doing what they feel like they need to be doing anyway. So... Of course, we want to be moving in a direction where everybody's comfortable to live the life that makes them happy. Like, of course. We started this conversation by you telling me that you've kind of achieved what you wanted to when you were growing up. What do you want to do next? Well, we'd like to make another season, but our American network shut down. So I don't know how optimistic we are um, about that. And if not that, then I don't know. I guess I'll go on holiday. So, So then what are the things in your mind that you think, I really want to have a crack at that? Um, I think more I think more I'll come up with an idea I like and I'll be excited by the idea than like the medium. People are always like, Do you wanna do a film or do you wanna do this or that? But it's like, do you wanna do you prefer to direct or act? These are all the meetings that I have, you know, with the people. And it's like I don't really care. I just wanna have an idea that's exciting and follow that through. But I don't have that yet. And where do the ideas tend to come to you? I don't know. I've got to come up with something. I'm getting a bit stressed now. You started eating the cap of yeah. the, uh, the water bottle. <laughs> I got a bit nervous. I don't, know. I don't know. I need an idea. Are you having an existential crisis? Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, maybe I'm going to be unemployed. Is that what I do? Go to Paris. I think you'll be all right. Josh Thomas, thank you. Thanks so much, Hamish. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossen. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Ben Wood, Shane Johnson and Ian Cooper, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.